Hi, this is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Thank you all so much for listening. You are the reason the episodes keep coming. You'll hear me say it over and over that I'm grateful for each and every one of you. All right, let's get going. On September 26, 1981, two young girls, both 13, named Cinda Pallett and Charlotte Kinsey, made their way through the crowds at the Oklahoma State Fair. The smell of cotton candy and body odors filled the air, but that didn't matter to them. It was the first time they were allowed to attend the fair without their parents. Dark-eyed Cinda wore her hair in the most popular style at the time, layered and feathered. She wore a ZZ Top t-shirt with dark sleeves, jeans, and a distinctive rope belt with a leather buckle that had her name tooled into it. She and Charlotte contrasted well. Charlotte was broodier, with blonde feathered hair and blue-gray eyes. The fair was a bright spot in what had been a dark time for Charlotte. She'd been struggling with her mental health, and two weeks earlier, she'd tried to overdose on tranquilizers, but she was feeling better. The fair would be an opportunity for her to get out and have some fun. They seemed to be having a great time as they were seen laughing and talking with friends. At 5 p.m., Charlotte called her mother to tell her that she and Cinda had been offered a job. She wanted to know if it was okay if they stayed out a few hours longer. They and a couple other kids would be paid well for unloading stuffed animals from a truck and bringing them to the fairgrounds. Charlotte's mother agreed with the stipulation that the girls call her at 9 p.m. The girls promised they would. Charlotte had planned to stay the night at Cinda's house, so it's assumed they would call from there or from the fairgrounds. Cinda then called her parents to ask if she could take the job offer as well. Their parents felt safe in the thought that the girls were together, so permission was granted. Little did they know that the job their daughters had been offered would lead the families down a path veiled in mystery and anguish. Their voices were silenced, and the promise to call home would remain forever unfulfilled. As the clock struck 9 p.m. that night, the girls' homes were filled with a haunting silence. When they didn't come home, the Oklahoma City Police Department was called, and a search was launched. The girls' homes were filled with the sounds of anxiety and fear. The families were desperate to find their daughters. When the sun rose the next day, volunteers scoured the fairground, taking flyers to every vendor, while officers interviewed fairgoers trying to figure out more about what the girls had done the day before. Their families were hard at work, too. Charlotte's family set up a 24-hour watch on the fairgrounds. The police put together a dedicated task force to search for the girls. Amid the haze of confusion and anxiety, a portrait began to emerge. Witnesses had seen a man, one whose face and attire were distinctive. He was between the ages of 35 and 50, with dark hair that was streaked with silver. On his face sat wire-rimmed glasses, and on his body, a brown plaid striped shirt, cowboy boots, and a distinctive cowboy hat. He was tall and muscular, at 6'1 to 6'3, and weighed approximately 200 to 250 pounds. He'd been wearing a yellow work badge and a leather belt with the name Joseph tooled into it. The man drove a two-door tan Pontiac Grand Prix with South Dakota license plates. It had a partial vinyl roof and it was dirty. Papers were scattered across the dashboard. 
Word at the fair was that he had approached numerous children that day, offering them jobs that paid five to ten dollars an hour. The sketch was drawn based on witness testimonies. And let me tell you now that the sketch artist did an amazing job. It, along with information about the missing girls, was put on flyers and sent to neighboring towns and law enforcement offices. Two boys would come forward with information. They, too, had been offered a job unloading toys. The two boys and the two missing girls were ushered into the man's car. He drove them to a truck stop off of I-40 to meet the truck with the stuffed animals. When it wasn't there, he asked the boys to stay at the truck stop while he and the girls drove further up the highway to the next truck stop, just in case there had been some type of error in communication. He gave the boys $10 before he drove away with Charlotte and Cinda. When he didn't return, the boys called family to come pick them up. The police had a description, a good one, and they had another lead. They'd found the yellow badge the man had been wearing. There was a photograph on the ID that looked a lot like the man who'd been wearing it, and it bore the name Donald Michael Corey. Donald was a 36-year-old carnival worker, or carny. He was also what some would call a drifter. He didn't stay in any one place for too long, which made police suspicious. They charged him with two counts of kidnapping and began a manhunt. A nationwide dragnet caught up with him two weeks later in Greenville, Alabama. He was extradited to Oklahoma. The contents of the station wagon he was driving at the time were also sent to Oklahoma. The contents of the station wagon he was driving at the time were also sent to Oklahoma, and officials began conducting extensive lab examinations of the items found inside. Although a preliminary search of the station wagon failed to uncover any evidence of the girls, police noted the vehicle that Donald was driving when he was arrested was not the same car used in the alleged abduction. For ten days he sat in a jail cell, suffering through withdrawal symptoms from his addiction to Demerol. Investigators combed through the evidence from his vehicle but found nothing of interest. They gathered evidence of Donald's drug addiction during their search for him, and it was his addiction that helped authorities trace him to Alabama. They were able to track him from one hospital or clinic to another. The case against Donald hung on only statements by the two boys who had been with Charlotte and Cinda. Their statement was that the photo on the discarded plastic ID badge looked an awful lot like the man who they said had offered them a job unloading stuffed animals at the fair. Once in custody, Donald, who followed the fall carnival circuit, admitted he lost the ID badge on the fair midway. He reported the loss of his badge to authorities at the state fair in Oklahoma, and they asked him to return later in the day for a replacement. Not caring much about the name tag, he left before picking up the new one. After he left Oklahoma, he traveled to Dallas and then went to a carnival in Memphis, Tennessee. He found out he was wanted when he went to a ministerial association to ask them for financial help. They sent him to a police station for a routine screening, and when they did, a warrant check turned up the two Oklahoma kidnapping charges. He was promptly arrested. There were problems with this suspect, though, big ones. The first I already mentioned. He didn't drive the same kind of vehicle as the one the boys said they had ridden in. Second, he told police he wasn't in the area on the day the girls went missing, and, well, when he was presented in a police lineup, the boys and three other witnesses 
said Donald wasn't the right man. The man with the stuffed animals, they said, was at least three inches taller. After six days of interrogations and investigation, they let him go. They found definitive proof that he had been in Dallas, Texas, on the day the girls went missing. He was innocent, but his name had already been drugged through the dirt. He was angry and hurt, and although he wasn't physically abused, he felt like he was mentally abused after having been called a liar over and over while being interrogated. The police, possibly embarrassed, agreed to drop two felony counts of obtaining a controlled dangerous substance by fraud if Donald would undergo a drug rehab program after his return to South Dakota. With their first suspect cleared of charges, it was back to the drawing board for investigators. They eventually ruled out all the carnival workers and stated that they believed the suspect had stolen Donald's ID so that he would have access to the fairgrounds and he'd be able to gain the trust of kids who attended the event. One early suspect was a man named Royal Russell Long. His brother-in-law had called to tell police to take a look at him. Royal was a part-time carny and a long-haul truck driver. Not only did he closely resemble the suspect's sketch, but he arrived in Oklahoma City the day before Cinda and Charlotte disappeared. He was there to deliver a flatbed trailer to a local business and admitted to visiting the fair the following day. He denied any involvement in the girl's disappearance and must have been deemed truthful because he was removed from the suspect list after only three or four days. That would turn out to be a big mistake. Huge. After a couple months without much progress, the police offered up a $5,000 reward for information leading to the girls. Their home community rallied. Their families added another $1,000 to the reward for information. Crime Stoppers added $2,500, and even more money was raised by the school that the girls had attended. These gestures were a strong testament to how much the girls were loved and missed. The kidnapping reached national attention with tips pouring in from as far as California, Maryland, and New Jersey, where a woman claimed she'd seen the two girls surrounded by a group of five Hispanic men working at the Funtown Pier in Seaside Park. There was even a reported sighting in Germany. Unfortunately, none of these tips were helpful in the investigation. There were some leads that were passed on to authorities through the girls' parents. Cinda's father was told that a man identified himself as James Miller, and he'd allegedly confessed to killing his daughter, while another man said he had seen the girls' bones and burnt clothing. Charlotte's sister, Lisa, had an ex-boyfriend who said he'd received a phone call from Charlotte, during which she said, Curtis, help. I can't get a hold of Lisa. Unfortunately, these leads went nowhere, and the case grew chilly. Three years later, and several states away, two more girls would go missing. The first was named Sharon Bald Eagle, and the other we will call Dusty. I don't want to use her real name because she survived, and at the time the girls went missing, she was a minor. She deserves her privacy. The girls both came from Eagle Butte, South Dakota, a place where the vast expanse of the Great Plains meets the horizon. Sharon, age 12, was the oldest of four siblings and had just begun her first year at Brainerd Indian School in Hot Springs, South Dakota. I guess she didn't like it much because she ran away. Her plan was to meet up with her friend Dusty, who was 15, 
and hit the road. Sharon's father believed she was going to make her way to Idaho to visit friends who she'd gone to school with in the past. As the story goes, their ill-fated journey began on the streets of Hot Springs, but they worked their way to the highways and byways of Casper, Wyoming. Their method of travel wasn't safe, but it was common at the time. You guessed it, hitchhiking. Regrettably, they crossed paths with truck driver and part-time carney, Royal Russell Long, and his intentions towards the girls was anything but admirable. He offered them a ride, which they accepted. Then he offered to drive them to his home in Evansville, Wyoming, where he promised to feed them and let them wash their clothes, shower, or whatever they needed to do. Once there, he offered them $100 for sex, which the girls refused. When they did, he pulled out a gun and tied them up with coat hangers and duct tape. He beat up Sharon and raped Dusty. When he was done, he was tired and went to bed. While he slept, Dusty was able to loosen her bindings and escape. She ran to the closest house. But by the time police had arrived, Royal was gone and so was Sharon. Dusty said that while she was at the neighbor's house, she was close enough that she heard the sound of Royal's truck as he drove away. After hearing Dusty's report of what happened, the police jumped into action. A week later, Royal was apprehended in New Mexico. Inside his vehicle, the officers found two stuffed animals, a green frog and a pink snake with a bow tie, but they didn't find Sharon. Royal said he didn't know where she was, and when asked for his side of the story, he said that Dusty and Sharon had told him that they were 18 and 19 years old, and they looked it too. His words, not mine. I don't think there's any justifiable way that a 51-year-old man could say that a 12-year-old looked 18. Also, why would a 51-year-old man have toys in his vehicle? Probably to lure children inside, not adult women. If he said he had young kids, well then he'd know for sure what a 12-year-old looked like. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Royal admitted that at first the girls said no, they weren't those kind of girls. But later, Dusty changed her mind. She allegedly told him that they needed the money for food. He and Dusty had consensual sex. But afterwards, Dusty demanded $200 from him and threatened to accuse him of rape if he didn't give her the money. He said that's when he found out that they were actually minors. He also admitted that there'd been a struggle, but he was the one who got hurt, not the girls. They gave him a bloody nose, so he pulled out his gun and tied them up. Then he took a nap, and when he woke, he discovered that Dusty had escaped. He must not have slept long, or the police response time was really bad, because he had plenty of time to carry Sharon out to his truck and race out of town. He said he drove her to Cheyenne, where he put her in a light-colored truck bound for Texas, and said good riddance. He never saw her again. 
Then he claimed he didn't even know he was wanted for kidnapping and rape until he went back home to Casper. At that point, he knew he'd be in big trouble if he was found there without Sharon, so he decided to drive to Texas to look for her. There were no facts to support the story. No one had seen him with Sharon. He was unable to identify the supposed trucker who drove Sharon southward or the truck she was allegedly placed in. It was obvious to the authorities that Royal had taken her, and they believed he killed her, but they had to prove it, and it wasn't going to be easy. They charged him with kidnapping, which he eventually pled guilty to. Around this same time, Royal's ex-wife was in Casper, Wyoming, when she came across a flyer about the missing Oklahoma girls, Charlotte and Cinda. She saw the sketch of the suspect and immediately recognized her ex-husband. She called the police right away. That phone call and the new charges renewed investigative interest in him for Charlotte and Cinda's case. Now this tip is interesting to me, because according to what I read, her brother was the one who initially tipped the police off about Royal when Charlotte and Cinda went missing. Now his ex-wife calls in a tip about him several years later. And they weren't the only ones to accuse Royal of misconduct. His own daughter would later testify to Royal's despicable character. Following a trail that crossed state lines, the authorities found records for the Pontiac Grand Prix that Royal had rented during the time he was at the Oklahoma State Fair. It matched the description of the vehicle given by all the witnesses who had seen Charlotte and Cinda inside it. Years after the abduction, it was found in El Paso, Texas, and it would be forensically tested. A long, hard look at the implicated vehicle yielded more crucial evidence. A search of the trunk uncovered a cache of hairs, both human and animal. The investigators moved on to searching Royal's home. His trailer contained a lock of blonde hair that could have been Charlotte's, but there were no roots attached, so testing proved inconclusive. Try as they might, they found no other evidence, but they did think they had enough to arrest Royal, which they did in August of 1985. He faced charges of kidnapping and first-degree murder. Unwavering in his assertion of innocence, he was denied bail. He sat in a prison cell as legal proceedings unfolded. While there, he sat, hopefully very uncomfortably, complaining that the authorities in Oklahoma and Wyoming were trying to frame him for the abduction of the two girls and the kidnapping of Sharon Bald Eagle. During his preliminary hearing to determine whether the case could move to trial, the defense claimed that Charlotte and Cinda had been seen in Miami, Florida, and then disgustingly said it was possible that the girls were working as prostitutes in Burbank, California, and said that they were porn actresses. The defense said these demeaning things to show jurors that there was a chance the girls were still alive. Supposedly, there were over a hundred sightings, except they never reached out to family or friends. Not once. Perhaps a second reason the defense shared these stories was to show that speculation with no basis in fact is not helpful at all when it comes to court proceedings. This mindset would work in Royal's favor since the bodies of the three missing girls were never found. This meant theories ruled, not facts. Without a body, the prosecution had to work doubly hard to prove Royal guilty. Witnesses took center stage, including Lance Rumsey, one of the two teenage boys who had ridden in Royal's vehicle, along with the two missing girls. 
the jurors also heard from two other girls who had been at the fair that day. They claimed they had been approached by Royal. He had used the same story about a job loading stuffed animals, but the girls grew suspicious and walked away from him. The prosecution brought in Royal's daughter, who claimed that he was abusive toward her and that she'd seen him lure young girls with toys many times in the past. Then the prosecution's team brought forward their experts on the physical evidence. Journalist Ray Robinson summed it up well. He said, Forensic chemist Janice Davis of the Oklahoma City Police Department testified she found four scalp hairs matching the hair of Cinda Pallet in the trunk of the car Royal Long was believed to have rented around the time of the 1981 fair. They used strands of hair found in two of Cinda's hairbrushes for comparison purposes. The hair found in the car had been stuck to a mat in the trunk after it had been painted over. Even so, they appeared to be a match. The chemist also said a lock of blonde hair found when police searched Royal's home matched hair clipped from Charlotte Kinsey by her grandmother a few days before her disappearance. Since there were no roots in the clippings, the forensic chemist could not conduct a complete comparison. The chemist sprayed the trunk mat with luminol, which glows when it comes into contact with blood and other substances, and sent photographs of the glow pattern to an expert on the technique. He testified that police did not tell him what they were looking for when they submitted the photographs. But in examining the pattern, he thought there was a possibility of either one large or two small bodies being placed on the mat. Defense attorney Michael Gassaway, who had been contesting the validity of the luminol process, attacked this theory. He asked, could it have been two dogs or two deer that were placed in that trunk? Yes, it was certainly possible. There were other hairs found in that trunk, ones that allegedly matched the three dogs and one cat that Cinda owned. The issue here is that Harris' evidence is tricky. As I understand it, and note that I'm definitely not a lawyer, nor do I claim to know the law at all, but I believe that hair evidence is only used in court if it's accompanied by other, more concrete evidence. The bottom line is that there simply wasn't enough concrete evidence against Royal Russell Long. The judge ended up throwing out most of the physical evidence, as well as the testimony from Royal's daughter. He said at the time, the evidence is simply not here. If Royal is in fact guilty as charged in this crime, it would appear that law enforcement officials in Oklahoma picked him before he was ripe. District Attorney Robert Macy would go on record saying that the judge was wrong not to let the jury decide in the case. He believed Royal, at age 50, was a serial killer responsible for the death of as many as 20 to 50 young girls. He said, I think it's a black day for this country because a baby-raping murderer has been set free. If there's a silver lining, it is that Royal was convicted of kidnapping Sharon and Dusty and was given back-to-back -back life sentences. You all know a life sentence doesn't mean an entire life, but a good portion of it. And a good portion of his life would have been spent in jail. But in this particular case, he did end up serving a life sentence because he died on November 3, 1993 of a heart attack while in the Wyoming State Penitentiary. He was 58 years old. 
he took his dark secrets to the grave with him. Yet as the chapter of Royal's life concluded, an unsettling aura of mystery still lingered. Whispers in the town suggested that Royal may have been involved in the disappearances of more innocent lives, including that of several girls who went missing in Rollins, Wyoming, beginning the 4th of July weekend in 1974. Among those who vanished without a trace was Carlene Brown, a 19-year-old woman standing at 5 to 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighing 100 to 120 pounds. She and her best friend, Christy Gross, both mysteriously disappear on Independence Day, leaving behind a trail of conflicting reports regarding their last lone location. Some claim their car remained parked at the fairgrounds where they were last seen, while others contended that it was discovered over 200 miles north in Worland, Wyoming. Carlene, to this day, has not been found. Deborah Meyer, another missing soul, was only 14 years old when she vanished from Rollins on August 4th, one month after the first girls disappeared. She had been visiting a family member at a local apartment building before heading to a local movie theater. No one is sure whether she reached that theater or not. She stood at 5 foot 4 inches tall and approximately 115 pounds and shared physical traits with Carlene, brown hair and eyes. Notably, she had a small circular growth on her left ear and relied on a full set of dentures when she disappeared. Then, a heart-wrenching case emerged involving Jaylene Banker, a 10-year-old girl who disappeared on August 23rd. This was only 20 days after Deborah Meyer's disappearance. Jaylene had been visiting the Carbon County Rodeo in Rollins when she became separated from a friend and was tragically never seen alive again. The response to Jaylene's disappearance differed significantly from the others. A massive and determined effort was mobilized to locate her. Yet tragically, it yielded no results, at least not immediately. As was fairly common practice in the 1970s, the disappearances of Carlene and Christy were initially classified as runaways. Rollins police did not initially afford their cases the seriousness they deserved, as Carlene had a history of playing her divorced parents against each other, moving between her mother in Colorado and her father in Rollins. While she was known to leave when it suited her, she'd always returned before too much time had elapsed. The discovery of Jaylene's lifeless body in a field eight months after her disappearance and the identification of Christie's skeletal remains in Sinclair, Wyoming, nine years after her disappearance, sent shivers down the spines of those who had followed the cases. They had both met a gruesome end, succumbing to blows to the skulls. Christie's remains were identified through dental charts and a ring found alongside her bones. Despite persistent police investigations, the poor evidence and the passage of time had transformed the pursuit of truth into a difficult task. In 2012, a ray of hope emerged when Janet Franson, a DNA technician from the University of North Texas, took up the challenge of using DNA to track down the missing girls and their potential killer. She was joined by a dedicated team of forensic anthropologists and odontologists 
and a fingerprint expert. Their efforts were difficult because of the absence of bodies, leaving them with a few leads to follow. Adding to the complexity of the case was Carlene Brown's adoption as an infant. This rendered her birth family a mystery. Tragically, her adoptive parents, comprising her father, mother, and her brother, Rick, had all passed away. Rick, too, was adopted, eliminating any possibility of using familial DNA to aid in the investigation. This so-called ray of hope also went nowhere. Throughout the years, the name that looms largest in the realm of suspects remains that of Royal Russell Long. He was a resident of Rollins in 1974. While some speculation has occasionally pointed fingers at notorious figures like Ted Bundy, the police dismissed these theories as unlikely. Thus, the enigma surrounding these disturbing disappearances persists. As the years turned into decades without definitive answers about Sharon Bald Eagle's whereabouts, her father's pain remained palpable. When asked about what it's like to live with this uncertainty over three decades, he struggled to find words. It hurts to even talk about it, he admitted, his voice heavy with emotion. She's in my prayers every meal, and she's traveling with me. He gestures towards the small, faded photo of Sharon taped inside his vehicle, which revealed that her picture was a constant presence in his truck. I will never forget her, he said, his eyes welling up with tears. He had raised Sharon and her three younger brothers as a single father. He forged a close and loving bond with his eldest daughter. She was the lady of the house, and she was a daddy's girl, he reminisced his voice filled with both pride and longing. Sharon's spirit was evident in her love for singing, playing piano, engaging in art projects, and participating in powwows. She also played a significant role in caring for her younger siblings and possessed a talent for cooking. Tragically, a tornado had destroyed his house in the early 1990s, leaving him with few precious photos of his beloved daughter. Sharon Bald Eagle's father was grateful for the emergence of the missing and murdered indigenous women's movement, which has raised awareness about cases like Sharon's, both old and new. Despite the passage of time and the many challenges he faced, he has clung to the belief that Sharon is still alive and being held against her will. In 2013, with unwavering hope, he spoke of their eventual reunion. There's no word for goodbye in Lakota, he explained. Since goodbye is final, we say dokesha, which means later, we'll always meet again later, no matter what. These missing women would be in their 60s now. All their families have left are memories. Speaking of memories, if you, by chance, happen to know anything that might be useful to solve any of these missing women cases, Please get in touch with your local law enforcement. Yes, a lot of time has passed since these girls went missing, but there are still family alive who want answers. I hope they are able to find some. I will post pictures to go along with today's episode on Facebook and Instagram. Please check those out, uh, especially the sketch of the suspect who took Charlotte and Cinda. It looks just like Royal Russell Long. 
This episode is dedicated to one longtime listener who has been itching for me to cover an Oklahoma case. I hope he enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed researching it. Thanks again for listening, and a special thanks to each and every one of you who shares this podcast with a friend or rates it, reviews it on iTunes or wherever you listen. I also have an extra, extra large thank you for Alice W. and Jewel C. for becoming Patreons. You guys are the bomb. Thank you so much. And to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.